getting coffee and stuff, we gotta get them in. We gotta start. Can you just say, hey guys, the event's starting, please come. And then I need you in prep. Good morning, everyone. Thank you guys so much for coming and being part of this today. We truly are honored, um, especially in this weather. We know that we're going to have a lot of people online as well, so thank you for those who've taken time uh, to watch online as well. And honestly, we're very honored by Destiny's Serve team. You guys are incredible, so thank you so much um, just for all that you guys have done to, to help put this together. If you haven't already seen or got coffee, that is in the back left, so feel free to get that. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to my lovely wife, Kaylin. Hello. Good morning. Morning. So we are going to jump right in, but I just wanted to kind of introduce us and what we're doing a little bit so that you guys know. For those watching online, thank you so much for joining us. We love connecting virtually. We wish you were here, but we're thankful that you guys are watching. So this is our Take Action event. And again, thank you so much for taking time to come out here and learn and join the fight with us. So I wanted to talk about a little bit about the heart behind this because I think it's important. So if you could sum it up in one sentence, it's we are aware, it's time for action. So anyone in here, we know that you're aware. And what we've found is that a lot of people now are aware of human trafficking, but we don't know what to do, right? Like we don't know the signs, we don't know how to report it or spot it. So that's what this event is all about. So we truly know how, know how honored that we are, that you guys are here to join this, because we need every single one of you. And so a little bit about ORR, just because we're hosting it. So we're Operation Royalty Rescue. We are a 5013C nonprofit. This is my amazing husband, Garrett, and this is my amazing brother, Chris Castellanos, and we are the co-founders. And 
you know, it was started, ORR was started because we were heartbroken, we were fed up with what was going on with human trafficking, and we were moved with passion to stand in the gap for those who can't stand for themselves. So ORR, our mission is to not only rescue children, women, and men, but also to restore them to their true identity, which is royalty, which is where we got our name. So we did want to jump into the training, and it is an on-watch training. We're going to jump right in. It is sponsored by Safe House Project and the Maloof Foundation, and we just want to say thank you so much to them for putting on this training. It is, I went through it, and it's incredible, and you guys are going to learn a lot, so get ready to take notes on your phone or your paper, um, because it's, it's really incredible. So we're going to jump in. Thank you, guys. Hi, my name is Christy Wells. I am so grateful to be here today and to really just share the value of this training with you. Um, I am the CEO of Safe House Project. Uh, my co-founder, Brittany, and I began Safe House Project back in 2018, um, really in response to you know, what you all are here for. Um, we saw an issue and we just refused um, for that to be the the landscape of our country. Um, we, when we began, we were responding to an international need, but people kept saying, what are you gonna do domestically? And so we became students of the industry. We began understanding what, what is the issue and, and how is this really woven its way into the fabric of our nation? And when we did that, we realized a few things. Um, what we you know, became students of the industry and, and asking and um, talking to the other experts that were in this, talking to survivors. And what we found was that at that point in 2018, the Department of Justice was reporting around 300,000 American kids were being trafficked every single year for sex. And we knew that that was a number that just shouldn't exist. But then we realized that the, um, uh, the reports were that only 1% of these survivors ever made it out or were identified, 1%. So when these 3,000 children were making it out or were rescued, they needed a safe place to go. And because without it, 80% would end up being re-victimized. 80% of that 1% that were rescued would end up being re-victimized if there wasn't a place for them to receive restorative care. So we had 3,000 kids that came out. How many beds did we have? If that's what they needed for restorative care. And at that point in 2018, there were only 100 beds in restorative care homes across America. 100 opportunities for healing, for long-term healing. And a safe house isn't just a home, it's or isn't just a house, it's truly a home where they are receiving education and job skills training and mentorship and a safe, loving, home-like environment that many of them have never experienced. And so when we began Safe House Project, our mission really is twofold. One is to increase survivor identification above 1%, and the other one is to increase the number of restorative care opportunities across America. So last year, Brittany and I, between the two of us, educated 10,000 people in person, and as we were educating people, we started to see the light bulbs go off. We started to see people say, I, and my daughter is being trafficked, or, or my son is being groomed, or I was trafficked as a child, and I just never had words to put to it. So we saw survivor identification increasing. And it was because the way that we train and the way that you're gonna to experience today is that we bring in survivor stories. They are the experts at, at the deepest level because they've lived these experiences. And the survivor stories are the things that really paint the picture of what this looks like in America. Because we can have a list of signs and indicators, but if we're looking for 
um, somebody in shackles and uh, an illegal immigrant and um, or we're expecting somebody to grab our kid and run across the border to Mexico then we're missing it we're missing the kids in our communities and our churches and our in our homes and our soccer fields um, and we're missing an opportunity to be on watch and to really respond to this issue and to make a difference so state house project mission again to, was to educate and the other is to increase the, the number of restorative care opportunities. So last year we added 32 beds to the national landscape by funding new or expanding safe houses. This year, um, Lord willing, we are going to have um, an additional 160 beds um, for adults and for minors to really receive restorative care and, and the hope and healing that they need to really, um, to Kaylin's point, just find who they are and, and um, know that they have dignity and value and worth as a human being and not as a commodity. So before we jump into this training, a couple of things I want you to, to understand about this issue is that, first of all, it, it, it's a big issue, and it is um, really woven, like I said earlier, woven its way into the fabric of our nation. Globally, it's a $99 billion industry, but it is hiding in plain sight. And one of the things I want you to do is it, kind of turn off the paradigms that you have in your head of what you think this looks like. Um, and understand that 66% of victims know and have a trust relationship with their first trafficker. Um, most of our um, survivors have gone through early childhood sexual abuse that has predisposed them and has taken away their, their boundaries at an early age. So that when this is forced on them as, um, as when they're older, um, as an adult or as a teenager, um, those boundaries have already been compromised and they have been told um, that they are, that is what they are worth. Um, only 4% of trafficking is abduction, and so while we, um, we do know that that exists, um, one of the things that you're going to learn today is that traffickers are walking into our home without ever coming through, or coming into our home without ever coming through our front door. And they're coming in in the form of, of social media and technology, and so you're going to learn how you as a parent um, can be more equipped to really protect your kids against some of the dangers that are online. Now, we're going to be going through this training um, virtually, but I want to encourage all of you to go to um, IamOnWatch.org and take this training for yourself because in between each one we're going to be chatting or I will be kind of uh, moderating through and teeing up the next video, but there are questions on there. There are downloadables for you to as a parent, some parent resource guides, different things like that. But we really love to get into your hands and really make sure that we are fully equipping you with not just knowledge on how to spot trafficking, but really how to prevent it. And then we'll also be teaching you how to report trafficking. So before we go into this first video, the, the one thing that I want to emphasize is that on average, 40% of child sex trafficking victims are trafficked by a family member. We had a, one story that's not on here, but a, an example I wanna give you is, we had a 13-year-old little girl who came to us a couple years ago um, she was 13, she'd been trafficked for three years. She had been raped up to 40 times a day. Um, and she just, her body was broken, she was broken. But her trafficker, the person selling her for sex, forcing her to miss over a year of school, wasn't a creepy man on the street, it wasn't somebody who had abducted her, it was her grandmother. And her mom, grandmother had sold her mom um, to the point that her mom became too drug addicted and STD ridden to be abused. And so when this little girl who we call Laura, when Laura was 10, her grandmother turned to her as the family source of income. Um, so understand that this is very different than what we expect. 
So with that, um, we'll go into module two. Or her emotional swings from overly affectionate to completely withdrawn. 
Hope's babysitter could have pulled up the sleeves to reveal the bruising in multiple stages, the cutting, or the untreated wounds by simply uncovering Hope's long sleeves. 40% of sex trafficking victims are trafficked by a family member. They still go to school. They still go to church. They intersect our daily lives. And sadly, sex trafficking hides in plain sight. So we have to be on watch to protect the youngest children in our communities from what happens behind the closed doors of their own homes. So as you can see for Hope, she was hiding in plain sight. Um, and you're gonna hear me say that a lot because that's what I want you to understand more than anything is this um, really exists um, all around us. Uh, she, I just, she was trafficked from the age of six to 11. She was eventually freed, but at 13 years old, that's all she ever knew. That's all she was ever told she was worth. And so at 13 years old, she actually turned herself over to a pimp because that was, she was completely broken. And it wasn't until later that she really was set free um, and free from, you know, even once her trafficker had been put in jail, it was the, the mental bondage that held her captive. It was the shame. It was the, the thought that that was something that was her fault um, that really controlled her for a long time. But to give you the hope side of this, because um, I would say we get to work on the hope side of the dark issue, she is now healed. She has now found Jesus and is on fire for the Lord. And she is now the house guardian at what is on its way to being the largest restorative care home in America. And she is pouring out mentorship and love onto other 12, 13 year old girls who have gone through the same trauma. And so, um, but for her, she, um, she really was, uh, I mean, surrounded by people who could have seen it all the time. And there were times that she told adults and there were times that she told somebody um, at her school what was happening to her. And they said, that's terrible. I just, I, I can't even believe you would say that about your uncle. He's such a great man. And they called him and they told him, I need to eat her. Um, and, and, and raped her. And so there are times that there might be children in your world that tell you something that you frame under who you believe the, the trap, like the people that are around them are. And understand the traffickers are very good at manipulating situations, at convincing people that there's somebody different. And so if you have a child who's ever um, alone or, or you can tell they need a friend, have the courage to let them open up to you and don't shut them down for what they're saying because it takes a lot of courage for a survivor to say this is happening to me and, um, and, and to feel like they're gonna get help because for hope, she went to three different adults and asked for help. One of them raped her when she told him, and then the other two basically turned her into her uncle. And so eventually she stopped. And so you, and you know, as adults, we have an opportunity to be a safe place for children to report their trafficking situation or, or what, you know, and they're never going to say I'm being sex trafficked, but they can tell you, you know, my uncle's hurting me or, or my dad's hurting me or my mom is, my mom's boyfriend is hurting me. Um, and so make sure you listen. So our next one um, is going to be talking about boys and internet grooming. 
And this isn't exclusive to boys by any means, but I can tell you that the only restorative care home in America that's in Florida, um, I think they have seven or eight boys that are in there right now, and every single one of them was groomed on a gaming console or a, or a video game, whether that is Roblox or Call of Duty or, um, oh, what's that other one I hate? Um, Fortnite. Um, that uh, all of those different games that is through the chat features that um, groomers really, they find ways to build friendships with these kids. They, um, one of the ways that they will do this is sometimes they'll represent themselves as a peer. And so if you think of Facebook, they can friend, you know, all of the kids that are in fifth grade, sixth grade at a middle school. They send, you know, figure out all the kids who are part of that middle school, they send them friends requests. I'm using Facebook because that's the one I'm the most familiar with, but they send them all friends requests. Maybe one or two will accept, and then they go into that one and, and those kids and they friend all of their friends. And so they continue down the path until eventually by the time they send a friend's request to a vulnerable child, it looks like they're a peer. And so the kids' guards are down. You know, you can ask them, who do you think is in the chat with you on a video game? And oftentimes they'll tell you that they think it's their peers, but the average age on, age on Fortnite is 45 years old. And so um, that is truly where a lot of predators are hiding. And it's not just Fortnite, it's through a lot of, um, again, different gaming consoles or internet grooming. Um, there are many times that on social media, on things like Instagram, um, if you've got a 12, 13 year old on Instagram, I promise you, if you open up and have a conversation with them about what kind of messages are sent to you on direct message, um, predators find them. And they'll send a message of, oh, you're beautiful. Oh, you should be a model. Oh, I'll be your sugar daddy. That's a big, big phrase. Um, and there are plenty of 12, 13 year old, 14 year old girls who think they're gonna go catfishing and they're gonna catch a sugar daddy. And um, they will, traffickers will find a way to build a relationship with somebody who is vulnerable. And they'll, they'll figure out what that vulnerability is, whether it's money, whether it's love, whether it's attention, whether it's um, shelter. Um, if they're being bullied, they will convince them that they are the only person who's their friend and they will build a web of trust around them um, and convince this child that they're the only one who understands them, they're the only one that will meet their needs, the only one that loves them. And so understand that we are not talking about physical kidnapping. We're talking about mental kidnapping to the point that a trafficker could go out and go after a child and just snatch them off the street and that kid, most of the time, will fight like heck to get away. Well, that, that's too difficult for a trafficker because then they've got you know, the parent who's looking for them, you've got the child that's fighting, the child that's screaming. But if they can convince them that this is a good decision and I am somebody that you can trust, sometimes the grooming cycle can be up to six months long. And they will, again, build that web of trust and convince that child to, to leave. And that is a very different, um, that, that is the beginning of the trauma bonding that will um, hold a kid captive to the point that a trafficker can, you know, in some cases, um, a trafficker can get them to the point that they can hand them, if they're 16 years old, hand them their car keys, hand them a cell phone, send them to a client, and that child will perform the task and they will return with the money, the cell phone, and the keys and hand them back because they are um, either so convinced that they, it, it, and we'll talk more about trauma bonding in a little bit, it, but it's a, a cycle of, um, of love and abuse 
um, kind of all intertwined. You see this in a domestic violence situation. So um, with that, we'll watch the boys and, and have grooming. Someone to drive him there. 
Joey lived in a financially unstable home and felt isolated. He spent hours by himself as his mom worked. Joey's teacher and school counselor noticed that he craved connection. He just wanted to be seen and accepted. His mom accepted that his escape was the gaming console or his phone, where he would spend an excessive amount of time with his friends in the digital space. Joey's trafficking situation would have been nearly impossible to notice once it started, since he did not leave the house of his trafficker until he escaped. Oftentimes, preventing trafficking within our community means protecting vulnerable youth before they run away or are lured by a trafficker. For vulnerable children like Joey, you may have had an opportunity to engage them at the first signs of abuse, neglect, and isolation. 35% of children in trafficking cases now involve boys, which means this could impact any of us. We all need to be on watch to identify and support vulnerable youth in our communities, because we have an opportunity to stop trafficking before it starts. doing this without muting myself. So as parents, one of the things that you can do is, um, again, go to the OnWatch website, make sure you're downloading the, uh, the parent guide on how to really protect your kids in the, um, in the online gaming world. There's uh, some great content there that was written by um, some parents who, who really understand this and, and in talking with the kids and talking with the survivors, of what are the things that could have um, protected you or prevented the situation from happening? Um, I don't think I touched on this um, a whole lot in the beginning, but again, these all of these stories are written by survivors that we have the opportunity to walk alongside, and the the value that they they were so excited and, and really honored to be a part of this only because they knew that they um, that their story had the ability to make a difference, and so they wanted to share all of these intersection points with community members to say if somebody had seen this my story could have been different. And so really um, on the internet um, grooming, you know, that's one that you really have the opportunity as a parent or as a teacher or as a coach or somebody, a Sunday school teacher, however it is that you're intersecting with these kids to start recognizing some of these signs and be able to step in and, and really have a conversation. Um, and there are more resources online uh, on IamOnWatch.org to just guide you through having those conversations with um, youngsters. Um, another thing that um, is not, uh, I don't know that it is on the website, but as a parent, I have twin nine-year-old boys and I have a seven-year-old daughter, um, and I do allow them to have access to iPads and those kind of things, but there's a lot of content that comes at our kids that we just, um, you know, I know none of us can stand over their shoulder all the time whenever they're on any kind of a gaming console or an iPad. And so the tool that I have found is the best that is out there is called Bark. Um, and if you have a family, it's a, I think it's a $14 a month subscription, but it will monitor internet, it will monitor apps, it will monitor, um, it's not monitor video games, but um, it'll you know look at the phone, um, the uh, pictures on the phone. And if there is something that, um, and you can set the different settings of, um, violence or um, uh, language or sexual content, and it will trigger and send something to your phone if there is something happening on your child's phone that is concerning or on your child's device. Um, I have it set up and 
um, am grateful for it because it alerts me if there is, again, there's content that comes up my kids through certain, um, uh, you know, chats or um, internet that, you know, they'll be doing school stuff online and this, um, stuff on YouTube that it, um, bad things will come at them. So this blocks it and then it lets you know. So it just allows you to be more proactive as a parent when you can't always spot check their phone. If you have a teenager, this would be best thing that is out there, I promise you, um, because it will monitor all of the different apps that you don't even know are a thing yet. Um, Bark does a really good job of keeping their algorithms up to date so that it will scan, um, again, Instagram, TikTok, um, Snapchat, Facebook, um, and a ton of others that I can't even think of uh, for um, bad content. So if you have trackers that are coming after your kids and they are sending kind of language through chats, it's going to flag that and it's going to let you know. Um, so again, just a really helpful resource uh, for every parent to have on every child's device. And I don't care how young they are, it is, it is valuable. I actually regret that I didn't get it on my kids' iPads earlier. Uh, this next one that we are going to go into um, is adult entertainment and es um, escalation within the sex entertainment industry. And while this might be one that you feel like might not touch you, um, maybe in your community or um, with the, the group of people that you stay around, um, I want you to see um, just the, how much a vulnerable youth can really be propelled into the space. And again, this is our opportunity to really protect the vulnerable and to make sure that we are um, being a support and always to those who um, are at a hard impasse in life. Um, to help, you know, maybe even prevent them from going into that situation. And the, the thing I hope you are understanding is that we all have our own perceptions. You know, with Hope, it was that she was a, you know, came from a loving home-like environment and there was nothing that could have possibly happened. With Joey, it was, oh, he was just a boy who was just kind of lost in his gaming console. And with this one, you're going to see that she really that everybody thought that she was just a promiscuous girl who just kept making bad decisions as it pertained to sex. And um, I want you to just see the, um, how her world got turned upside down. So there's this next module. You know that show 16 and Pregnant? Well, that was me. I didn't mean for it to happen. I decided to keep my baby and my baby daddy split, never to be heard from again. So nine months later, I was on my own trying to care for a baby and myself. I got a full-time job, but I could hardly find enough money to buy baby food at the local mini mart. I was depressed and overwhelmed, but constantly having to choose to eat or pay my bills. I didn't want to. No one wants to. Sometimes you feel like you have no choice. I started stripping so I could just provide for my baby boy. The club owner took a special interest in me. He even let me bring my son to the club. He would play with my boy so I could work. I hated bringing him there. I never wanted my boy to see me like that. But I didn't have anyone else to call. And I couldn't afford to pay for daycare. The owner promised he'd keep my boy safe. I had no choice but to trust him. Every day when I left for work, 
I could feel my neighbors watching and judging me. Didn't they realize I had a baby to provide for and my family had kicked me out? Eventually, the club owner told me I owed him a favor. I really didn't think I could say no. After the first time, I told him I couldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it again. He threatened to hurt my son if I didn't. What would you have done? I had no one. It seemed like every day he had more of his friends he wanted me to have sex with. Each time, I got hurt and he got paid. I was doing it to protect my son. I kept my boss from hurting him and I brought in just enough money to take care of him. But in time, I couldn't handle the pain anymore. To cope, I abused my body. I filled it with drugs, I cut it, I starved it until my clothes hung across bones, critiqued by its own sunken in eyes. I wanted to disappear. I hated the body that brought me to that place and I was intent on destroying it. My son would be better off without me. So one day, I decided death was better than this hell I was living. When I woke up in the hospital bed, I was half dead and had no idea how I got there. The nurse looked at me and said, you were saved for a purpose. I took my son and I got the hell out of that city. It is not enough to know Tina's story. We have to take a step beyond awareness to understand how to identify trafficked individuals and feel equipped to report suspected trafficking. To the outside world, Tina was a pregnant teen turned stripper who chose that life. The Minimart cashier noticed a young girl who would come in and out every few days and count the change in her purse to pay for baby food. Her neighbors saw an irresponsible mother who took her child to work. The men who watched her at the club or bought her each night were told she was a prostitute and that she wanted it. They mistook her forced smiles as compliance, but failed to see the club owner watching her across the room. But if you know what to look for, you can see the signs in Tina's story. The reality is Tina was a teen mother with no support system. Her family had kicked her out and wasn't surprised when she made another bad decision when it came to sex. The Minimart cashier could have seen someone who spent every dime she had on food for her baby and never on herself. Her neighbors could have noticed a young mother who had no other choice but to bring her baby to work. How was she supposed to pay for her childcare when she couldn't even afford to keep the lights on? Routine clients in the club could have acknowledged the cuts on her arms, her sunken, distant eyes, and how she had become the shell of a human being. Ultimately, Tina escaped her trafficking situation with a suicide attempt and a nurse who reminded her that she had dignity and worth. Tina was one of the lucky ones. A study from the U.S. National Institutes of Health shows 45% of sex trafficking victims attempt suicide, and many survivors engage in self-harm on a regular basis. Cutting or self-harm is a way of coping with extreme psychological or emotional distress. People who work in the sex entertainment industry can find themselves in situations that often escalate to sex trafficking. Some forms of the sex entertainment industry, like strip clubs, are legal, and it can look like an individual is choosing to be a part of it. 
Therefore, it can be easy to overlook these illegal activities. These victims will most often intersect with community members in addiction support groups, domestic violence or homeless shelters, and church outreach programs. By being on watch and reporting suspected trafficking, you are helping protect every individual in our communities. So one of the things I hope that you see in that is that we have the ability, again, to serve those who are vulnerable. And it's easy for anybody who um, thinks of a child sex trafficking victim to have compassion. But what I will encourage you to do is open your mind to understanding how those who you know, are introduced into this space at an earlier age, um, they might cross over that age of 18, but that doesn't mean that they become a free thinking adult and all of a sudden they're making sound decisions. Um, they are, are really trapped in, in kind of a cycle of violence. And they are, um, you know, for us to really be willing to combat this issue, it's just as important for us to have compassion on those who are trafficked as adults as it is to have compassion on those who are trafficked as children because the, again, the mental bondage between the two, the psychological damage between the two, the complex PTSD is, is no different. Um, this next one that we are going to talk about is sexting to sextortion. And this is one that is so critical because this is, and you're gonna hear some stats about, um, this is basically so pervasive within youth today. Um, it is one of the most common things so many of them face is blackmail. Um, sending a picture and then being blackmailed to do something that they don't wanna do. Um, and that's even by friends. Um, so I want you to understand in this situation, um, it's the boyfriend that is the one forcing her to, to do things that she doesn't want to do. But understand, we have seen sexting this extortion and traffickers that are high school cheerleaders that are, you know, they get a hold of a video, a picture that a friend, you know, one girl is sent to a boyfriend and then they, um, they blackmail them um, and force them into doing things that they don't want to do. And so, um, again, this is so important as a parent to understand what is facing children today. Um, good kids are still making some bad decisions and are finding themselves in some really terrible circumstances. And so, um, as again, anybody who's engaging with youth, um, you know that this is a, a major issue. So with that, we'll start sexing this extortion. Did you have a good day? Mm -hmm. 
coming. Hello? Yes, hi. It's your mother. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mom. Eventually, he convinced me to sneak out on weekends to meet him. He used and used his blackmail to coerce me into sexual acts with his friends. I never thought a single nude would lead me into sex trafficking. It's not enough to know Hillary's story. We have to take a step beyond awareness to understand how to identify trafficked individuals and feel equipped to report suspected trafficking. To Hillary, she was a teenage girl in a thrilling relationship with an older guy who she wanted to please. She believed it was a relationship with love, protection, and commitment. She knew her parents would get mad if they knew she'd sent him pictures. She had no idea he was distributing the photos of her pornographic website. She just wanted to keep him happy and hold his attention. To her parents, Hillary was a girl who started dressing provocatively, but that's what teenagers do. She was always messaging friends, making social media videos, and spending hours in her Everywhere she went, her phone was with her, and she wouldn't let them near it. When she couldn't find her phone or her phone would die, she would panic. In reality, Hillary was groomed by a predator.
Grooming is the process of someone building a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with an individual so they can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them for a sexual offense. Sexting has become one of a significant part of a kid's online world. One in five teens report they engage in sexting. Ultimately, engaging in sexting can lead to sextortion, child pornography, or blackmail. Sextortion is when someone demands sexual images by threatening to release or distribute material the child seeks to keep private. Alternatively, child pornography occurs when a child provides sexual images to someone else. They have no control over whether someone else redistributes those images. Once images are being sold online, it's difficult to track and remove. Those images can damage a child's reputation. Furthermore, legal action can be taken against both the child and the predator for creation and distribution of child pornography. While a child coercion to sending sexual images is a victim, legal ramifications still exist. And it's important to discuss those with your child as a preventative measure. And finally, there's blackmail. A child can be forced to engage in sex acts and illegal or harmful activities to keep the sexually explicit images private. Periodically, traffickers provide a team with two phones once the exploitation has escalated to the creation of child pornography or in-person trafficking. Of those children who engage in sexting, two out of three will experience extortion before the age of 16. Escalation extortion usually occurs within the first two weeks of initial contact with the predator, and then threats ensue daily. So I hope you heard it in the end. One in five children today engaged in sexting. But then two out of three children who engage in sexting can get um, trapped in sextortion. Like, this is a pervasive issue in our world today. And understand, it, as it was said in the video, if you've got a teen who is creating these pictures and sending them, that they can be held responsible for creation and distribution of child pornography. And that could be a legal, um, really legal action or legal um, judgment that follows them their entire life. Or if you have a high school boy that has gotten um, videos or pictures from a girl and he sends them to his friend, that is distribution of, of pornography. So it is, I want you to go back to the original definition. I don't know if it played initially, but sex trafficking is the commercial sexual exploitation of an individual through force, fraud, or coercion. Um, and that sexual, ex um, sexual exploitation could come in the form of prostitution or pornography. And so, you know, a decade ago, everybody was handed a personal recording device in the form of a cell phone. So sometimes sexual abuse or, um, or rape or, or Sex, you know, is, is being recorded and is now being distributed online as pornography. Um, but in, in much of, um, and, and sometimes the, the victims or those being raped don't know that. Um, and so with sexting, um, these pictures are, um, are making it online very, very fast. Um, there has been over a 90% increase in um, sex, sexually illicit images um, that are being, are being evaluated by NECMEC um, online. And so we are seeing a huge spike in um, pornography and the images that are um, being available even since COVID. Um, there have been a lot of changes, so, or a lot of increase. So just understand that this is an issue that is surrounding our children today. And this is, um, 
absolutely one of the more um, intense, more pervasive ways that sex trafficking is finding its way into our culture. Um, the next video that we're going to watch is boyfriending. And this is the survivors that we have coming into the safe house programs right now. One of the most common forms of trafficking, looking at familial trafficking or, or grooming within the gaming console or adult entertainment that escalates, sexting to sextortion, boyfriending scenario is the most common one. And this is the hardest because they are really convinced that they are in a loving relationship, that they have somebody who truly has their back that is going to marry them, that you know, they say, this is, we're going to build a life together. This is, you know, I want you to do this, but you're doing it for us. It is um, so much of that language. And, you know, so when we talk later about why don't victims self-identify, why don't they understand that they were being trafficked? Many times it's because there is a very manipulative boyfriending scenario that has occurred that has really got them tricked and convinced that um, it makes them believe that they are part of this. Um, instead of them feeling like the victim. And so that's where that's where they really struggle to ask for help is because they think they were a willing participant. But again, sex trafficking is the commercial sexual exploitation of an individual through prostitution or pornography, but using the tactics of forced fraud or coercion. Now, if a minor is used in commercial sex, um, then it doesn't, they, you don't have to prove forced fraud or coercion. It's child sex trafficking, period. But um, still, in the boyfriending situation, we can very easily point to um, that coercion that's there. So, here's our boyfriending module. My parents died from a drug overdose when I was seven. On my eighth birthday, I went into the foster care system. The sexual abuse from my foster brother began immediately, but no one believed me. For years, I bounced from foster family to foster family. No matter where I went, the abuse would follow, either at the hands of those in charge of protecting me or another kid living in the home. To escape my reality, I would spend hours on my phone, video chatting with random strangers in my room. No one asked me about it. They assumed I was chatting with friends from school. When I was 15 years old, I met the one. I told him all the things my dad had done to me. I told him my fears, my hopes, my dreams. He asked if we could meet in person, and he took me to this fancy new restaurant in town. That night, he told me that he would keep me safe. He made me feel something I had never felt before, loved. For six months, he loved me, bought me new clothes and a new iPhone. He took care of me, protected me. But then something changed. Eventually, my boyfriend suggested that I start sleeping with some of his friends so we could afford the future we had dreamed of. The first time, I obliged, but after I felt dirty. He helped me that night as I cried and gave me something to ease the pain. That night, I went back to my foster home. I refused to talk much. My foster parents thought I was giving them an attitude. They didn't know what had happened. 
The next day, there were two guys at his apartment. I said no, and he hit me. He said I was going back in our agreement. When it was done, he held me as I cried. Then he said he wanted to buy me something. He took me shopping and told me he loved me. He helped me use makeup to cover up the bruise on my cheek. He talked about our future. He said this was only temporary. And so this pattern continued. I was bathed in his love and abuse, threats and rewards. Each day I went to him, I just wanted to make him happy. But I didn't know if he would love me or hurt me that day. But his love was still better than any love I had ever had. So eventually I quit school and left my foster family to be with him. It is not enough to know Ava's story. We have to take a step beyond awareness to understand how to identify trafficked individuals and feel equipped to report suspected trafficking. To the outside world, Ava was the sad story who had lost both parents to drugs. She was a hard case for anyone who tried to engage her. She was a bit of a loner, but she didn't seem to care because she had an older boyfriend who ruled her world. To some people, Ava was the girl who quit school and ran away. But if you know what to look for, you can see the signs in Ava's story. The reality is Ava was a vulnerable child who was groomed to be trafficked through a boyfriending scenario, which went unnoticed because Ava bounced between foster care families with no support system or consistency of schools or friends. During the grooming situation, her foster parents could have questioned her intense romance with an older boy. Her teachers could have recognized her hypersexualized behavior or provocative clothes. Other students could have noticed how she would parade her latest expensive gift from her older boyfriend. Anyone could have seen how a girl already lacking a support system or many friends was drawn into a very isolated relationship. Once the trafficking began, her foster parents could have noticed her mood drastically shift. Her foster siblings could have acknowledged her jumpy and anxious behavior. Her teachers could have recognized multiple stages of bruising. Other students could have seen a girl who was flaunting a relationship with an older man and being secretive about that same relationship. Boyfriending is one of the most common forms of sex trafficking. It is a grooming process by which an individual, usually a woman, enters a romantic relationship with a man. It escalates from a mutual caring for one another to the man controlling and manipulating the woman. Everyone needs to be on watch for unhealthy relationships that can escalate to a trafficking situation. So again, I hope you understand how easily this can happen to anybody that we know. I mean, gosh, for uh, probably all of us, we can always all probably point to a time in our life when we were vulnerable or we were looking for love and um, can understand how something like this can really happen, how those that web of lies can get woven around them. Um, so on this next one, um, we want you to understand why don't they leave? Um, Self-identification within um, the sex trafficking industry is actually not as common as you would think. You don't have children running for help, screaming, I've been sex trafficked, or, or help somebody sex trafficking me. Um, 
because again, as you understand, there's there's a web of, of lies and of shame um, that are, are really around them. And so, um, again, we want you to understand why don't they leave? So here's our next module. Sex trafficking is rarely abduction or kidnapping. Most individuals are trafficked within the community they live. Sex traffickers form a complex, unhealthy relationship that usually escalates over time. The trafficker weaves a web of deception that results in a person letting their guard down, compromising, and renegotiating some of their boundaries. The trafficker is highly adept at identifying their victim's unmet needs for example, food, shelter, love, protection, and then meeting those specific needs. The trafficker is highly skilled at forming a strong emotional bond, then taking this relationship to a dangerous level. In most cases, it is the mental bondage that keeps a survivor compliant. Victims are threatened harm to themselves or the people they care about. This is the fear that survivors live with every day of their trafficking situation. Sex trafficking is a form of interpersonal trauma and has significant mental health impacts on survivors, including complex PTSD and trauma bonding. Complex PTSD is an anxiety disorder that stems from severe, repetitive trauma over a period of time and is more pronounced in those who have experienced childhood abuse. Whereas trauma bonding is a powerful emotional attachment that a victim has to their trafficker, stemming from power imbalances and intermittent good-bad treatment. Sex traffickers will also film interactions with buyers as a form of blackmail. The pornography is used as a manipulation tactic to keep a victim compliant for fear of exposure and shame. Some survivors have asked for help and not been believed. Others don't know who they can trust or how to articulate the trauma they have experienced. 95% of identified survivors never receive the trauma-informed care they need to help in their road to recovery. Listen to survivors share the challenges of trying to escape their trafficker. He told me time and time again during my trafficking that if I told, I would live to regret it. I don't want to ruin my family's reputation. I'm buried in shame and guilt and blaming myself for something I didn't even do. He said no one would listen. No one would believe me. He told me they would think I was bad and that I was a liar. It was my fault. He threatened the life of my children and my family if I told anyone. I'm ashamed of the choices I made then that led me down this path. My trafficker would give me to the cop for free if he would look the other way. Uncertainty of where I will go makes escape feel impossible. This has been my whole life. Is there anything else out there for me? In order for survivors to escape the cycle of victimization, they need programs and people that help empower their path to freedom. Simply escaping a trafficker does not equal freedom. 
For years, efforts have been made to raise awareness of sex trafficking, make laws to prevent it, and rescue those enslaved. But the story cannot end at rescue. Safe House Networks are a comprehensive solution to survivor care that work to assist a survivor from the time of escape through them reintegrating back into society. A safe house is not a shelter. A safe house is a home where survivors receive care through therapy, medical attention, education, and life skill training. A safe house network is everything from emergency housing to long-term restorative housing to transitional opportunities. It is creating a continuum of care empowering a survivor's path to freedom. Safe houses are places where those who have been treated as a commodity and nothing more can start rebuilding their identity and confidence. Safe houses allow survivors to discover who they are, what they're good at, and what brings them joy. The basic parts of personality and identity are often robbed from survivors. Safe houses allow them to get those things back. Without restorative care, most victims will never testify against their trafficker. Testifying is an essential part of the prosecution process, and victim impact statements are valuable to the judge during sentencing. Beyond that, the ability to testify can help a survivor feel as though they have taken control of their own story, their own body, and gained justice for themselves. To eradicate sex trafficking, we must increase victim identification, provide robust treatment to those who have been victimized, increase prosecution of traffickers, and provide preventative education for children and at-risk populations. Our goal is to spark change in our nation by igniting a fire in each of you to be on watch to spot, report, and prevent sex trafficking. You can prevent future generations from exploitation. You can be part of ending sex trafficking in America. Well, I hope this has been something that's been helpful today. We'll skip that last module. Uh, but the two things I want you to know is if you have a suspected trafficking incident, it, it's really going to fall into one of two categories. is either an active trafficking situation or a suspected trafficking situation. And so if you are seeing some indicators of child sexual abuse, or you have somebody who has called and told you that, or who, you know, a child who has told you that this is happening, um, then you need to report it to the authorities and it, it, that needs to go to local law enforcement. But if you have an incident, incident of suspected trafficking, and you just can't put your finger on it, but you think there might be something happening, that's where you would call and report it to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. That's the number that was on the screen in between every video, but if you have not written it down, please do so. And that number is 888-373-7888. Or you can text help or info to be free. Um, so if we had, one thing I want you to understand is that if you report suspected trafficking, you're never gonna be found at fault if it's not an active trafficking situation. We would hope that it's not. But the National Human Trafficking Hotline aggregates that data. That if, um, let's say a teacher has called and said something is not right, this is the situation, 
but then a coach has called and maybe they don't, those two people don't talk to each other or a youth pastor has called. Um, and that information starts going into the National Human Trafficking Hotline. They can aggregate the data in order to create a, a case to, to go in and look to it. So it goes to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, but then they push that information to local law enforcement, whether it would be HSI, FBI, um, uh, it could go into CPS at some point, although they're not law enforcement, um, local PD, uh, the U.S. Marshals, there's different groups like that 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 information would get to um, depending on who is um, kind of over human trafficking for that area on the law enforcement side. But um, really, again, there's active trafficking and there's suspected trafficking. The other thing that's important to understand is while you can always engage that person who you believe is being victimized and you can build a rapport with them, um, again, undertake have conversations in the context of trauma bonding and that they might be defensive over the person that's trafficking them. Um, they might not trust um, sharing that information. Um, but build a rapport with them, develop a relationship, and um, begin seeing if they will open up to you and ask if they're okay, ask if, um, if they need help, um, but never engage the trafficker. Um, be very careful because the traffickers see the victims as, as their property um, and it's their income. Um, a trafficker will make um, sometimes $250,000 off of a person in a year. And so by pulling that person away from the trafficker, um, if you are doing it in a very obvious way, it is, it's going to put your life um, uh, on the line as well. And so make sure that you are engaging law enforcement. Law enforcement needs to be the ones that are really engaging or taking out that trafficker. Um, but we hope that you have learned something today. Again, I um, would encourage you all to go on. There's still about four other modules to go through, um, but go on and, and take the full on watch training, get your certificate. Um, we encourage you to share this with other people. Um, and just, you know, again, understand that sex trafficking is, um, those who have been trafficked as, again, children or adults are often people who have just experienced um, substantial trauma and um, they deserve our love, they deserve our support. Um, survivors are some of the most resilient, um, if not the most resilient and um, uh, determined people I've ever met in my life. Um, and they don't wanna be seen as a victim, they wanna be seen as a survivor because it took everything that they had to survive their situation. And, um, and they are more than their story. Um, so I, um, again, thank you all for taking the time to become on watch for caring about this issue uh, because it is really when um, it's not going to be one group that solves this but it's going to be every community every individual um, every government leader uh, who steps in to say I am on watch um, that we are really going to eradicate this issue in America so thank you for having me on let me give her a round of applause everyone I don't think she can hear it but thank you so much Christy thank you for that we wow Raise your hand if you guys learned something or you feel like, is anyone maybe kind of aware, maybe more of something going on around them? Awesome, awesome, we love that. So again, thank you so much, Christy. We are so thankful for that training. And we have a special guest here, and her name is Kayla Bright. I'm gonna call her up in one second, but I did just wanna say, I hope you understand the power that comes with a survivor's story. Um, we are so honored that Kayla's here. It takes a lot, 
as I'm sure you've heard, for someone who's gone through something so traumatic to share their story. And so I want you guys to really honor her. And she flew all the way from Philadelphia. Woo! If anyone, it's really cold there, so what we hear. So we're trying to move her down here. I'm just kidding. But so she came all the way from Philadelphia. So you can come up, Kayla. Why don't you give her a round of applause? This is Kayla Bright. So she's going to share her story, and then she's going to open it up for questions and answers. And she's an open book. Um, she'll also let you know if your question's not appropriate. She's not afraid of that either. But please feel free to ask questions. Um, we're also online. Anyone online, please, in the chat, ask questions. We will be asking her that as well. But we just want to say we honor you. We're so thankful you're here. We're th <laughs> just thankful for your story and that you're willing to share. I'm going to stop talking because I'll just cry, but the floor is yours. Thank you. Hi, guys. Um, first of all, thank you so much for coming to this event. Um, it's incredible to see so many people here and online as well that want to help in this situation. Um, it is very present in the United States as well as the rest of the world. Um, so, as Christy had kind of said, trafficking doesn't look like what the movies portray it as, um, and my story does not look anything like the movies either. Um, so, first of all, thank you so much. My name is Kayla, like she said. Um, I was groomed from a very, very young age. Um, the earliest um, memory that I have of being groomed was around the age of six. Um, from what I can remember, it was about from 6 to 12 um, years old. Um, it was a friend. Um, her father had um, sexually abused me um, in some very dark ways that led me into a life of complete dissociation from me as a person. Um, I was told from the age of 6 that I was created to be used and that I was just basically holes, and I had no worth whatsoever, and that's what I believed. Um, I had no friends. I went through school being bullied um, and completely just went into myself. Um, I threw myself into studies. I was a very smart kid um, all through school. I, was, I hid behind books. I hid behind anything that I possibly could to make sure no one saw me. Um, if I could have been invisible, it was probably one of my favorite superpowers when I was a kid was to be invisible. Um, so growing up, um, this is all about education, so I kind of want to tell you some of the signs that I, as a kid, had portrayed that if someone had seen it or had recognized them as signs, my entire life could have been different. Um, from a very young age, my parents said that, and I remember as well, I was lying, um, extreme lies. Um, the very first one that my parents remember me telling was I told my youth pastor um, that my mom had been killed in a car accident and she had dropped me off at youth group. Um, or not even youth group, I think it was like a kids event or something. Um, so extreme lies are a very huge sign of it. Um, a lot of the times, kids at that young age, are, you're not, they're not being talked about. 
that sex should not be happening. They may not even know what sex is at this point. But you know to your core that it's not right and it shouldn't be happening. So you're trying to look for other ways to receive the care and the comfort that you need. So you create elaborate lies um, to receive that care and attention. Um, I also, from a very young age, was very promiscuous. Um, I was any attention that I could get in form of um, sexting or attention for guys or girls, it really didn't matter. It just was what I felt as love and care for. Um, and it's what I kind of thrived off of. Um, the earliest recollection I have of self-harm was probably around the age of eight or nine. Um, it was my form of escape. Um, it was, it's, it's so hard to walk through and when you don't understand it, so you look for other ways to just let the pain out in whatever way you can. Um, so that was a huge sign for me as well was self-harm. Um, and I actually told someone um, I, in middle school, um, going in ninth, or eighth grade and ninth grade, I was at a concert with some friends and I was re-victimized. I went to the bathroom and I was raped. And I, at this point, my life completely turned upside down. I completely isolated myself. I stopped communicating with my parents. I, I just rebelled in every sense of the word. And my parents realized something was going wrong. Um, my parents are amazing and wonderful, and they decided to send me to counseling because um, they didn't really know what to do. Um, I was sneaking out. I was doing everything that kids do when they rebel. And they sent me to a counselor, and I opened up and told the counselor that I had been raped. And she told me that it was my fault, that I was wearing inappropriate clothing. Um, I was wearing jeans and a sweatshirt, um, and that it was my fault. I shouldn't have gone to a concert, that I should have been more safe. I should have gone with someone to the bathroom. Um, and at that point, I completely shut down. I wanted nothing to do with um, family. I wanted nothing to do with friends. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do with really anyone. Um, and I threw myself into studies. and the promiscuity went skyrocketed at this point. I stopped caring completely. Um, I got involved with some not great people and started dating someone that provided me with love and attention and made me feel safe. And this was my last year of high school. Um, we went our to different colleges and um, stayed together. But the cycle of abuse started um, when we went to college. And it was constant, um, I love you. And then he would sleep with someone. And it was my fault, because I wouldn't do this, this, or this. And it, I already had zero self-worth. And that made my self-worth below zero at this point. Um, so I was paying for college out of pocket. Um, I had a few loans, but pretty much was working full time and was in school full time. Um, so 
a friend and um, my boyfriend at the time presented me with this idea. Um, I was enjoying college, um, and my friend and him said, you're already doing it for free, why not make some money? Um, and in my mind, it was a no-brainer. Why do it for free when you could make money off of it? Um, that led me into five years of high-end escorting. Um, it's, this is where it doesn't look anything like what most people think. Um, I was in private jets and very expensive restaurants and I paid for college out of pocket without a loan or any grants. Um, I bought, had a car bought for me. Um, these are huge signs that um, I know people saw. Uh, people had said things and in weird ways had just asked like, hey, where'd you get that car from? And my response was, I work full time. I'm a server. I could pay for it. Um, no one who's paying for college out of pocket can afford a $30,000 car with no, no payments on it. Um, the hard part of a survivor story is when you do feel like you had a choice in it. Um, a lot of times people do question it of, you, had, you could have said no. You could have not gone through with it. Um, and for me, it was actually empowering when I was in it for a while. Um, I was going on very expensive dates. I was getting to travel. I was getting to pay for the schooling I wanted. Um, I was getting to do really, really cool things. I would go out with my friends and spend thousands of dollars on drinks and dinner for us. And I had friends and I had a boyfriend that loved me. and a bunch of other people that were bestowing me with gifts and everything. Um, and then it took a turn for the worse. Um, a client that I had was seeing for several months invited me to a private event party um, in Miami. So we flew down and when I walked in, um, I realized within about 10 seconds that this was not a party, it was a trafficking ring. Um, and everything that you see in the movies times it by 10, and that's what I saw. Um, I went through about three to four days of this ring, and afterwards, um, I was told that someone had bought me and that they were coming to pick me up. When he walked into the room, it was the same guy who had brought me and I was extremely confused. Um, he put me in the car and looked at me and said, I'm sorry. And we flew back to where we had come from. And I walked into my apartment and I called my dad and told him I'm coming home. And he came and picked me up from college and I hightailed it out of college and dropped out and moved back home and disappeared. Um, pretty much. Um, so this was about four years after the trafficking had started originally. And I ended up in, in this kind of afterwards. I broke up with the person that I was with. I was doing pretty well. Um, I had this really good serving job. I was making money. I was living on my own. And then financials started to get hard. Um, 
and it was the only thing that I knew how to make money with. So after about two years of being out, um, I needed some money to pay rent, and I went right back to it. Um, during this time, I was with someone who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Um, and this was going on on the side. He had no idea about it. And one day, I got a text when I was at work, and he said that he had gone through my computer and had read my texts. And I came home, and he looked at me and said I was the most disgusting thing that he had ever laid eyes on, and he wished he had never met me. Um, and I hit rock bottom. This was in two, 2018, and it was a few weeks before Thanksgiving, and I was turning 25 a few months later, and I couldn't imagine another 25 years of this life. So I decided that I was going to take my life. Um, to this day, I have no idea how I'm alive. Um, that's all God. <laughs> um, but I somehow did not die, and I called a suicide hotline, and they told me about this program. It's called Mercy Multiplied, and they told me that it was free. Um, so the next day, I walked into my parents' home, and I said, we have until my 25th birthday. At that point, it was about a month and a half out, and I said, we need to get me into a program. If not, I'm not going to live past my 25th birthday. Um, I ended up applying to this program and got in and moved in three days before my 25th birthday to this home. Um, this was last year. I was there for eight months and received healing that is beyond words. Um, January 17th of last year, I wrote down in a journal how I felt about myself. Um, the words I used are something that I hope no one ever speaks over themselves, ever. Um, but the really cool thing about a survivor story is when they receive healing, they become someone totally different. Um, and the one thing that Christy had said that I really liked was that identification of self is huge for a survivor. Um, and that has been the most amazing, incredible part of my healing journey is going from someone who believed that I was literally created to be abused and used to someone now who's standing on the stage speaking about it um, has been incredible and such a blessing. Um, I'm going to look at my notes because I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, one second. Um, okay, so... Um, grooming and this empowering feeling that trafficking um, victims feel is huge and that is something that I really wanted to kind of share with you guys is that um, when you see someone or suspect someone is being trafficked um, they are probably in the most associated mindset that you could possibly ever encounter um, it's someone who is in an abusive relationship times 10. Um, it's a, especially if they've been abused in the past, it's a form of control. You think that you have the power over the person who's buying you, um, that you can create your 
price tag basically that's on you. And it is a cycle of just control and then absolute zero self-worth and then it's just this circle that never ends until you're out of it. And even once you're out of it, the fight to stay out of it is even harder. Um, so that is one thing I really want to share with you guys is if you ever meet a survivor, if you ever suspect someone is being trafficked or even just abused, um, the amount of love they need is on a totally different level. Um, uh, I don't like for me, I don't even like the word survivor. It ties me to the word victim. Um, I like to use the word warrior um, because I had a fight for my life, my entire life. Um, I had to battle through things that I wouldn't wish on my absolute worst enemy. Um, and, but the same thing is with just seeing all you guys here of wanting to work through this and help people who are involved in this is that there's hope. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if there wasn't hope. Um, and there's healing for these women and men and girls and boys who are going through this. And it takes all of you guys seeing the signs and recognizing it and educating yourselves and then loving these people um, through it, during it, and after it. Um, and yeah, I don't really have too much else to say. That's kind of my story. Um, yeah, so if you guys have any questions, I'd love to answer any of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, originally, it was some um, older friends of his, of a relative of his, and someone who I trusted um, that I thought that would keep me safe and protect me. Um, and then eventually, it became high-end people. Um, very some very big names um, and some other not big names is kind of all over the board um, but yes yeah, so it started with very close people to me um, that I trusted and then they ended up using their circle and their network to start the trafficking process outward from there Yes. <laughs>
Um, for me, finance, finances were huge in this. Um, I really needed help financially and I needed help to pay for school and other things. Um, so providing me with even just a way to make money, even, it, even if it was a job or whatever it may have been, um, that helped financially to pay bills and everything, that would have been help helpful. Um, also, it was very obvious of me growing up that something was wrong, um, that I had gone through something that was, had, had destroyed me as a person. Um, I went from a very happy, bubbly, um, energetic little girl to completely closed off and not wanting to anything and isolating and um, self-harming and all of this. So someone who had known me, who was were starting to see these signs, um, opening up and talking to me about it and starting to build that trust with me would have been huge. Um, I, I don't know if I would have gotten out of it sooner, honestly. I wish I could say that I would have. Um, my story is just a little bit different than everyone's, um, but I do know a lot of people who are involved in the sex industry that do find empowerment from it. When you have zero self-worth and you've been told your entire life that this is what you're good at, this is what you're created for, this is what you're, this is just what people want you for, when you have control over that situation, it's super empowering. Um, so someone planting seeds into it of what my worth is and who I am and if this is a church so and I found my healing through God so I'm going to speak it from this way um, speaking life into people and speaking life into where their identity is rooted in Christ and um, that you're for me like tell me I'm a daughter of the, of the king of kings that fights for me and has never left me and all this other stuff that like those little seeds of just empowerment and that's something I say even from a child like you literally cannot pour enough worth into your child or children if you work with children if you see a child who is isolated if you see a child who doesn't really have friends if you see a child who um, just seems off like you can tell when a child is off um, if you don't know the situation that's happening, just pour into them. Tell them that they're loved. Tell them that they're worthy. Tell them that you, you were created for a purpose and you are, whatever words you want to tell them that come to mind, pour into them because eventually that child may open up to you. Um, and the other thing is teach your children the proper words of their private parts. There is no reason a child should ever say, my uncle's touching my cookie. That is not right. It's not wrong to say private part or any other word. That is huge. I hear that so often from, from people saying, like, I would have known if they, if they had just used the correct words. Um, that's huge. They will say things of, 
or if, you know, even if it's something off, like, you know, if your child doesn't want to hug someone, look into that. Like, children, I don't have any kids, so not all kids are like this, but most kids like to be around people, and from what I've seen, like, I babysit, like, um, when a child doesn't want to be touched or doesn't want, you know, if, say, uncle, whoever comes over and the child immediately runs away and is, like, saying, like, no, 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 I don't want, like, I don't want to give him a hug. Listen to that. Look into that. That's not normal. Um, that was probably, that was huge for me. I remember telling um, people that I didn't want to go to this man's house after school, um, but I, but it was my friend. It didn't, it, it did it shouldn't have made it it didn't make sense. This was one of my best friends, and I didn't want to go to her house. Um, hopefully that answers a little bit of your question. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'll sh Do you want me to share? Okay. Um, from... I'm, as a guess, the youngest that I saw there was probably about six months old. Um, ranged from that to, at the time, I was 22. Um, all ranges. Um, I don't know if, if most of you have probably seen the movie Taken, where she, they're in that giant circle room, all dressed up pretty. Um, it's like that, but ten times worse. Um, and it's all ages, and there are people who want all ages. Um, that's another thing. Um, this is an all-gender issue, but while you're looking for the signs and people being trafficked, look for the signs in your friends. Um, comments that are made. Um, if you, you know, locker room talk. Um, no one should be making little comments about kids. No one should be making sexual comments about people that they just don't know. Um, confront people about that because for all you know, that's a comment being made and that person is abusing someone behind closed doors. Um, grooming and abuse is a huge, huge, huge um, runway to trafficking. Um, I know so many people that that is their backstory. Um, I know someone who is literally trafficked from the age of three months old. Um, and it, it destroys you physically. Um, so check, look for the signs in your friends too. Um, think of what you wouldn't say. If something, someone says something weird and you're like, that was a weird comment, look into that. <laughs> There's probably something to it. Trust your gut. Um, and don't be afraid to say it because as much as you like that person's personality, they could be destroying lives. And lives are not worth the risk of their personality and your friendship. Um, yeah. My question is, at what point did your parents know? 
Um, I think my parents suspected something was wrong from a very young age. I just don't think they knew what to do. Um, my parents are amazing and loving, and I was raised in an incredible home. Um, I, I just don't think they knew what the signs were. They had a child who was just lying and was rebellious, and they, you know, it, they just didn't know. Um, I was a huge chronic liar. Um, so I did tell them that I was raped, um, and they didn't believe me. Um, and that made everything a lot worse. Um, they found out about, I honestly, I do think they suspected that I was being trafficked. Um, maybe not trafficked, but that I was involved in prostitution or escorting. Um, I came home with a car, and they, and my, I remember my mom and dad asking me about it and like kind of saying some things here and there. Um, I just honestly don't think they knew what to do. Um, and that it's not their fault. Like they, they had no idea. Um, but now with more education coming out, like back then there really wasn't education on this. No one was really talking about this. Um, now there are resources like this where people are providing resources to parents and everything. Like this is where it, it takes another step up of you need to um, actually do stuff when you see those signs. And um, even if you don't have a great relationship with your kids or anything like that, um, you know, my parents did check my phone and I would freak out and they would take my phone when they found, saw that I was sexting or anything like that and it would just make everything all the, wor all the worse between our relationship. Um, and this is something I honestly, I, I can't give an answer to. Um, maybe if they had pushed a little bit more to find out, to, to build a foundation and a bridge between us that would allow, allowed me to feel comfortable opening up about it, maybe it would have um, helped. Um, but at the point that I was trafficked at that point, it was, I wasn't listening to anyone. Okay, I have one more question. Okay. Somebody else. Okay. Okay, once they realized what you had done, how was their support system? I mean, did they love you? I mean, it's just... Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, it, was, it was definitely hard for them. Um, the first time I shared my testimony was when I graduated the program, and I think it probably was the first time they heard my full story. Um, and I definitely could not look at my dad and dad in the eyes. <laughs> um, that was the most thing I was most worried about was what was he going to think of me. Um, so that's another thing of like when you find out your child is is involved in this, um, it's not your fault. Um, it's just love them. Um, look for resources of how to help them. Um, my parents were an amazing support system all last year and this year as well. Um, and honestly, throughout my entire life, they've been an incredible support system. 
Um, but when I finally opened up about it and was going through the healing of it, they were with me every step of the way. So, We have a question from online. They said, first, as a professional counselor, I'm heartbroken to hear your experience. I'm reminded that the battle is on both sides and educating within our field is necessary. My question, it is often difficult to help a young lady realize the dangerous path when they are in the grooming stage. What advice would you have on how to help one see they are being groomed by a boyfriend when abuse has not occurred? Whoa. Um, hmm. First of all, you never know if someone has actually not been abused. Um, I remembered my childhood abuse last year for the first time. Um, it was something that I had completely disassociated from. Um, I'm, keep in mind, I'm 26. Um, I found, I remembered what I went through from six to 12 last year. Um, I, my entire life, I always knew something was off. Um, I, I can't watch Law and Order. It, traumatizes me. Um, I always knew that there was something. I just didn't know who, what, or when, or where, or why. Um, so, if you're 150% positive that they did not have any abuse whatsoever, um, at that point, you need to figure out why they are attracted to that. Um, there's something in their life that is attracted to that, and there's something in their life that is craving that control and that like abusive love. Um, it could have just been someone who knew exactly what to say, when to say it, and it was someone who they just got involved with, and that was that. Um, if that is the case, love them through it and be there through it. Um, that is something I per am personally going through with someone who um, is very close to me. Um, they don't recognize what they're in right now, and there's nothing I can do. Um, when Sometimes when they're in it, you just have to love them. Um, I told some of the team, OR team last night, you have to be willing to have a broken heart in these situations because sometimes we don't, the survivors don't want it when they're in it. Um, they don't recognize it. One, the other thing too is that they could be completely afraid for their lives. Um, so ultimately it comes down to like just love in whatever way that is. If that's offering help, like the girl talking about, if you see something like that, offer to babysit their kid offer to, even just that, offer to buy them groceries. Um, you know, no little girl grows up and says, I want to be a stripper. No little girl grows up and says, I want to be a prostitute. So if you see someone who is involved in those activities, look for ways to help them um, because that will build the trust that you care and that may be your way in. Um, trust is huge. Um, we don't trust people. <laughs> at all. It takes, even now, I've gone through healing and I still don't trust people. Um, it takes months 
and months for me to open up to people and trust them. Um, so look for ways in. Um, you're all human beings. Think of what you would want if you were, you know, if you were a stripper who had a child. What would you need um, in those situations? How can you help them? How can you do anything or any other scenario? Is there anyone else with questions? Okay, hold on. Hey, Kayla, thank you so much for being here and doing of this. Course. We so appreciate you. Um, I guess my question is, you said as a child you were a chronic liar, and so then when you did tell your parents about your rape experience, they were able to, well, not able to, but they dismissed it as another extravagant lie. Um, do you believe at that point, if they would have um, kind of said, okay, that's a far enough lie, we're going to take you to counseling, would you have opened up to a counselor at that age and been explained it to them? And, and do you think that would have made a difference? Um, yes, but I did open up to a counselor before that, before I had even told my parents. And the lady had told me that it was my fault. Um, in that scenario, when I did tell them, um, ask questions. Um, there are details that you can't make up. Um, it doesn't matter how good of a chronic liar you are. Um, and you can tell when someone's lying about something. Um, if someone is if someone says they were, they're raped or whatever, abused or anything, um, you can't go off the normal signs. You can't go off of, like some people say, like when you're lying, shifty, shifty movements and like eyes, you can't look people straight in the eyes. You can't look at people straight in the eyes and not shift when you tell them that you've been raped. It's, it's just not possible. It's extremely uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. It's, you don't want to. Um, so if someone opens up about that and they do have a history of lying, um, ask some more questions. Don't, do not dismiss it because you literally could be shutting the one door that could help them out of this of situation. Um, I would not have gone into trafficking if someone had not, if people had not dis dismissed that. Um, I had opened up about that when I was still in high school and my trafficking started when I was in college. Um, so that honestly could have changed my entire life. Okay, so we are running way late. So Kayla is going to be I'm here. I'm okay if you okay? want to ask a few more questions, that's fine. How's everyone else, <laughs> we okay? Okay, all right, I just wanna make sure, it's hard, I just wanna say it's hard to put a time on stuff like this because it's so important. So if, they can't see me on the live. If you're alive, we, we thank you. And like I was saying, it's hard to put a time on this because it's important. And we did open the floor for questions. So we are running a little late and we are so sorry about that. But um, if you can hang with us, we would love for you to stay. Um, Kayla's an open book and she's here. And I, I know a bunch of hands just went up. So we're just gonna keep going with the questions. Um, if you need to leave, of course you can. Um, and we love you all, so let's continue. What kind of questions do you ask? 
be more specific to a, to a child that you're trying to, what kind of questions do you ask? Um, specifically to a child? Um, can you give me an age range that you're... Three, four, five, very young. Um, and, and are you asking if this child has already opened up or you suspect this? <laughs> Maybe you've seen some signs. Have you, yeah. What do you mean by coach a child and it's not the truth? Okay, um, so if you have a, some, you know, you suspect something's going on, you're seeing some signs and it's a young child, um, ask them questions about people in their lives. Um, if this is if, if this isn't a family member or something, um, you know, or let's start with family member. This is someone in your family. Ask them how they feel about going home. Um, you know, if if they you know sometimes if it's a, a dad or something like that, like ask them how their relationships are going. Um, the signs are there, um, and I. I it's hard for me to talk about the younger ones because I I haven't gotten to a point in like my personal healing healing journey that I remember totally what happened when I was a kid of what I would have been saying. Um, but for example, I distinctly remember multiple times telling my parents that I didn't want to go to this person's house. Um, so like ask why, be like, why don't you want to go to your, why don't you want to go see your cousins? Why don't you want to go see your grandparents? Um, and if they say something weird, be like, is, ask them. Like, you know, if it's a young child, three. Um, if they're still in diapers or something, is ask them. Like, you know, when you when you when someone cha like changes you, is someone t is someone touching your private parts? Um,